Hi everyone and welcome to Hit the Apex. This week, following the Canadian Grand Prix, it's our 24-hour party people edition, as well with the 24 hours of Le Mans on this weekend as well. We'll preview that race for you a little bit later. We'll talk about the Canadian Grand Prix, of course, as well. Um, even though it was a bit of a boring race, there is still a lot to talk about and we'll go over all the weekly um, news and well as well in the digest. So um, thanks for joining us as always. Jawad here with Baden. Um, yeah, Canada, probably a bit of a doozy. We're kind of glad that we had the day off anyway on Monday to to be able to recover from that, getting up early and everything. But um, yeah, Montreal Masterclass from Sebastian Vettel to claim his 50th career win from pole position as well. Absolutely, and against the grain it was for Ferrari, all that hype coming into the weekend. It was going to be another Mercedes walkover, and, and even I was quite surprised uh, waking up Sunday morning thinking... Surely those silver arrows will lock out the front row and they're quite taken aback to see that uh, Hamilton down in P4 and really one of those anonymous Sundays and that uh, typical boorish attitude he had over the radio when he was never in contention and on race day, I guess, Vettel, he was never really troubled at all. Yeah, exactly, and um, we'll go over Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes in a second, but for Ferrari, I guess it was quite emotional as well, the whole weekend being the 40th anniversary of um, the win, um, the first win in Montreal uh, by Gilles Villeneuve as well, being the Canadian, the home favourite, winning that, so it would have been a favourite, you know, a special race for them, but for Ferrari, not having won in Canada since 2004 when the Michael Schumacher reign ended, I couldn't believe that stat either, that it's been that long since Ferrari had won there so it, it was a good result for them all weekend and for Vettel too a circuit that he normally doesn't have much success at 2013 had been the only win um, to his name that he had previous to this and then um, 2011 we know what happened that year with the lead being lost in the final lap so yeah great result for Ferrari and for Sebastian Vettel um, as far as championship points are concerned as well, he gets one point lead now heading into a crucial triple header with France, Austria and Britain coming up. So yeah, great result for them all round. Yeah, I think really it was just important for them to not hold a, a slide as such. You can't say that they've completely lost the plot since those opening races, but uh, circumstances conspiring against them recently just about hanging on and this one really puts them back on that course they were at earlier in the season and uh, really yeah the next uh, after this weekend three uh, weekends on the bounce that's going to be huge in the the context of, of who enters the back half of the season already it's it's hard to believe we're now a third of the way into it and um, I'd say that Ferrari's very much as it stands they just look like they're a bit more um have a bit more inertia about them whereas Mercedes just uh you don't know what they're going to do they just seem like um, the script really uh, it's very unpredictable from their end well with Ferrari you could say that their car seems to be a lot more dialed into the different type of circuits that we've been to so when you look at Seb's three wins um Albert Park completely different circuit to Bahrain for example completely different circuit to uh Canada now here so um yeah they've won on three different types of circuit um, mix of high downforce low downforce power as well this is typically the circuit that Mercedes have dominated because they've had the better the better power pack um on board but I guess not bringing that engine upgrade for them this weekend 
in hindsight may have cost them, which they will do next time out in France. But um, yeah, going on, I guess the race of procession is it ultimately was um, Seb leading unchallenged from the front. We had Valtteri Bottas and Max Verstappen lining up second and third on the grid and there wasn't much action between them apart from the start where um, you know Max tried to get one down the inside going into turn one and Bottas as he normally does defends really well coming out of turn two and from there on I guess there was um, very little chance we could see those positions change and it was a one-stop strategy as well for most drivers in that race too which I guess Pirelli would have hoping would have hoped that yeah the tires would have had a bit more degradation two stop race perhaps and yeah you could see that um, that one stop strategy was much to the fans distaste and there was a lot of criticism that came after uh, came up after that as well yeah not for the first time this season that strategy is contra to the belief heading in on a Sunday you see the qualifying results and you think everything would indicate to those multiple stops and then it, never quite comes to pass and it just equates to a, a bit of a, a fizzler you could say and uh, as far as those minor placings certainly for, for Lewis Hamilton when you see the Red Bulls they did optimize it quite nicely that strategy ultimately and uh, it does make you wonder as far as that championship battle it really um, keeps everybody guessing when we think ah oh, well maybe a Ferrari or a Mercedes will utilize that second stop to perhaps um, overcut um, another car with fresher rubber and it never seems to even have that opportunity to, to enter the equation. Well, yeah, they all seem really keen on just um, conserving and trying to maximise a one-stop rather than take the risk and go over to a two-stop, which is what Pirelli and everyone would like them to see. And I guess um, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, for example, he started sixth. He got the benefit of the undercut over um, Kimi Raikkonen and Lewis Hamilton and ended up fourth, I guess, in the end. But, you know, Kimi and Lewis then didn't have anything in response to that, you know, and as you suggested, perhaps taking a second stop for one of the guys, you know, maybe if a safety car had came out late, that could have helped them there. But um, yeah, there was no initiative, especially seeing as they weren't going to be, especially for someone like Kimi Raikkonen, where He's often, he's often surprised Ferrari gave him a dud strategy. Well, (laughs) you know, they, if he's going to be the dummy car, why not have, take that initiative and see to get a couple of extra places back, put him on a two stop or something, you know, they've, again, we're reaching that point in the championship, as you say, where points become crucial and constructors championship is that in ferrari's minds at all so so i think i don't know if it was ferrari itself or the the commentary team suggesting ferrari's wary of any uh additional pit stops after the shambles of bahrain yeah after bahrain what happened with the uh mechanic being injured but i don't know if it's i mean i can understand their concern there but i do believe it's a bit of a excuse if you if you will um the sport is all about taking risks and everything and it's not like you know, it was a freak accident what happened in Bahrain, and I don't think it's regularly going to see mechanics flying over the the shop and everything. But um, yeah, for Ricardo, good result there. Good result for Red Bull. Finally, third and fourth, um, a solid haul of points, which we could, haven't been able to say about them all season. I guess they've been boosted by that um, upgraded Renault power unit as well. Um, we'll talk more about power units and Red Bull later on, anyway. But, um, yeah, good result for them. Uh, Gets them a bag of points. Verstappen, I guess, a good weekend for him. 
He was fastest in all three practice sessions. Then I thought perhaps coming into qualifying, he'd be able to take pole like Daniel did in Monaco, but that wasn't the case. He still qualified third, had a clean race, finished third. So I guess, you know, Going from where he was pre-race under a lot of scrutiny, he came out to the in the press conference and said if he had any more questions in regards to um, his crashes that he would headbutt someone. So it's good that he actually didn't do that and was um, using his head to have a solid weekend um, as far as being on the track. And this talk afterwards being emphasised that he travelled solo minus that entourage of his father and, and co whether this <laughs> it's did mainly make just an the father to make, make an impact on on his results and whether it's part of the, the ongoing plan just to remove any kind of distraction. But you can see that racing aside, that was just the kind of weekend he needed, even though it wasn't anything spectacular, just, just enough there just to be stable and, and give him some kind of uh, base to work around because he's just been woefully <laughs> inconsistent or consistent in crashing but not in picking up these handy podiums like Daniel Ricciardo does so often. Well yeah it's very hard to avoid those questions and I guess that's why a lot of people were offended by the remarks that he made about headbutting um, people in the media. I mean it's um, a valid question you know what what is going on why are you crashing you know i mean you didn't hear pastor maldonado for example say that he was gonna uh do a flying kick at someone if um, they keep asking about the crashes and whatnot so there is a lot of expectation on verstappen he's in a position where he's been brought into formula one off the fact that you know he's a once in a generation talent and when he's not delivering of course there's going to be scrutiny about it because a lot of people have invested a lot in him You've got media people who are following him, thinking that, you know, he will be the next best thing or whatever, uh, the next Ayrton Senna or Michael Schumacher, for example. So, of course, there's going to be a lot more pressure. And I guess perhaps that's just a bit of his immaturity coming to the fore there where he says, oh, you know, leave me alone. I'll headbutt you if you keep asking me. So, yeah, that's something that Verstappen, we're going to have to see him mould, be moulded in that sort of fashion where he can deflect that without um, coming out in the fashion that he did. Yeah, still a way off. Hard to believe he's not even, if he was in America, of the the legal age. So he's probably a good, you know, 25 is probably the point when drivers enter their prime. And as far as him just as an individual, uh, he's coming still off a very immature base and not to cut him any slack, but uh, he probably does... It does need to be wary that he's under the spotlight and save that kind of rhetoric for for his own thoughts. Yeah, you know, like I can understand the whole hype around it that, oh, he um, will become the youngest world champion or whatever. Um, I mean, Seb was 22 or 23, was it, when he won the first title in 2010? And Verstappen, I guess, still three years off that. So there's plenty of time for it. He doesn't have to rush to it now. But, you know, I guess just the expectations that they've got seem a bit unrealistic and whatnot. So, yeah, you just got to um, sort of curb the enthusiasm, as uh, Jackie Stewart said, leading up uh, to the race in the week. And, um, yeah, just play it calmly. And we saw the result of that this weekend because he finished third on the podium after a solid weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Enough said about Mr. Verstappen. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could carry on about him anyway. But Lewis Hamilton, off weekend for him in general at his favourite circuit. He finished fifth in the end. Um, as you say, 
when he's having a bad weekend or you know he's on for a bad result we hear it in his tone of uh speaking and everything he just sounds miserable and even during the race uh the communications with his team uh over the team radio with his engineer um just a bit heated and everything he was flustered by the tires not working for him and just in general, nothing was working for him. So, yeah, I guess it's just a damage limitation result once again for Hamilton this weekend. Yeah, and I guess uh, not being accustomed to that position, he's almost always been number one at, at Canada. If he's not retired, then, yeah, he's won, I think, seven, six or seven times. And it's quite quite amazing to think he just seemed in a different race altogether and mentally just switched off as he so often does anytime there's not a sniff of, of victory and it's just peculiar when you think about how he was leading that standings until coming into the the weekend you just he really hasn't displayed any of those trademarks of, of someone who's in charge of his campaign and it's just a very much a race to race proposition for him and of course with that um, uncertainty until it is um, absolutely sealed for his own future beyond 2018. Yeah, that too. I mean, we're getting to that middle point of the year where the driver contract situation will come more into the picture and everything. And from what we understand, it is a mere formality, I guess, between Hamilton and, and Mercedes to, to keep him there. But um, yeah, as far as keeping, you know, in charge of his campaign or whatever, I mean, I sort of look at it with a bit of caution as well because around this time last year you could have said that he was in a similar situation but then come these middle races of the year especially when we get to Europe like you know Austria pretty much, pretty much beyond Britain he just beyond Britain as well it just it's something clicks and we saw that in 2016 as well when he was in that championship fight with Nico Rosberg where he ended up winning four races in a row I think it was in the month of July that they had um, from Austria, you know, Britain, then Hungary, Germany. He won those four races well, this, in a this row. This year, can you believe it? We have five races in July. Yeah, well, you know, five races in a July. If he wins those, and there's something uh, that Sebastian Vettel and Ferrari will be uh, quivering about. But, yeah, you know, we can't write Lewis Hamilton off until the very end because as defeated as he sounds and everything he's still quite dangerous I feel and that's something that we've learned over the last few years watching him he is a bit of a master of the mind games so he's going to be playing this one very interestingly yeah and no, I do think whenever that announcement does come a little bit of speculation lately that it will be announced prior to France other train of thought will be that it will tie into his home event for Silverstone either way that's uh, within the next month you think that the finality of that will not not that we're hoping Hamilton wins we do want to see someone there take it all the way uh, to the Abu Dhabi finale but whether it does have a, an effect on his performance once all that's taken care of yeah exactly but more on Hamilton I guess another time anyway um, moving it on Renault, best of the midfield, as you would have expected. Seventh and eighth, led by Hulkenberg over Carlos Sainz. Um, same opportunity missed by Force India, because we had both Renaults, both both Force Indias qualify inside the top ten. Um, Perez out of that little 
battle early, having clashed with Carlos Sainz. Yeah, and he basically wanted uh, Sainz hung, drawn and quartered and chucked over the, the <laughs> bay there for that uh, apparently uh, Machiavellian stunt, which was really nothing more in it than just a normal racing incident after the safety car. Yeah, just a minor racing incident, even though Perez was um, accused of far worse in uh, 2014 with Felipe Massa. So getting a bit hot-headed there is um, Checo, newly married, of course, as well, um, coming out. So perhaps he's just a bit hungover from the, the wedding party and everything. But yeah, Perez, unfortunately, out of that points battle um, early, he uh, was able to squander home somewhere outside the points. Esteban Ocon was solid again uh, to finish in ninth for Force India. So, you know, starting the season, Force India was tipped to be behind the likes of Renault and McLaren and Haas. But, you know, Force India, you had a Force India ahead of a McLaren and um, of Haas this weekend, which was good to see. Um, and Renault have clearly established themselves as being at the head of that midfield um, with that stranglehold on the fourth place in the constructors at the moment. Yeah, Renault's solid, if not... Um unspectacularly you've got to say that they're they're just doing what they need to they're never looking like they've got a chance of penetrating that top six without attrition and all of those cars were lapped indeed by the the top six runners so they're in their own little race well that there. was that was something that was worth laughing over is that the uh, customer red bull renault had lapped the factory renault as well both cars had lapped both the renault cars so that was something to laugh about i guess during the race as well but uh, yeah you, you were saying yeah, just for for them, uh, I don't know, they're probably still uh, a year off being in that uh, hunt for podiums, but they're obviously on an upward curve. And Force India, I guess, they back in the day, that, that idea was that they would start the season hot and then fade away as the resources ran out. But this time it's uh, contradictory to that off-field, off-track speculation about the future sounding very tedious they, they continue to pick up these points and as McLaren continues to, to slip off the ball after that decent enough start they're looking like they could be in the hunt and then with Haas as well they've really not capitalized Force India suddenly looking good for maybe fifth in the constructors yeah especially with those two big names like Haas and McLaren um, just losing points again this weekend but more on them in a second anyway we did have one safety car deployed at the end of the first lap and that was after Brennan Hartley and Lance Stroll crashed out so two big names of course uh, the Kiwi finding himself on the wrong side you could say but that wasn't um, the only thing that happened Lance Stroll had a bit of a moment himself so he tried to correct and then Hartley I guess just ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time so um, good that there was no penalties dished out for it but boy you know with all the pressure that Brennan Hartley's been under um, having qualified 12th with that upgraded Honda Power unit, it would have been nice to have seen him finishing the points this weekend. Yeah, he shows real glimpses, but he just gets unlucky in these moments, whereas Pierre Gasly, for the large part, tends to keep himself out of trouble, and it just gives further ammunition to to those doubters. It seems like every weekend there's a new candidate, as I've mentioned, for the, probably the last month, and that talk, of course, Lando Norris could be loaned out and, and even talk from Zach Brown that he'd be open to it if it was only a short-term deal so that won't go away until Red Bull commits that Hartley can see out the season and yet Hartley says that oh he knows what's written in his contract and it's clearly a case of Red Bull breaking that contract um, to get rid of him, which would be pretty unjust, you would say, in the legality, in the legal... Yes, but Red, Red Bull's never been afraid to dice with jurisdiction and legality, so it would be no surprise at all to see them happy to 
to fork out whatever it costs to uh, put the the accent or the sky through another promising driver's career. Yeah, well, as we said last week, it's just, you know, I guess their expectations have been inflated a little bit by um, the result of Gasly in Bahrain. But um, anyway, well, it was just disappointing to see. And I guess for Stroll as well, it would have been disappointing being his home race, his home weekend, and being kicked out on the first lap. Um Williams, again, woeful, uh, nowhere to be uh, seen. Stroll just has this habit, I guess, of um, every time he starts, he picks up places, which is good, but then there's nothing to come of it because the car is woeful. So, Yeah, I think for, for them, it's just a manifestation of of where things are at and, and clearly overcompensating. Uh, you get to that point where you're just trying to make things happen and probably a bit of a combination Hartley probably shouldn't have been there in the first place but Stroll just a bit clumsy and that part of the circuit it's pretty notorious if you get out on those marbles then you're a bit of a a passenger and uh, as far as they're concerned again we keep mentioning that they're just rudderless and the talk that they're going to continue to develop the car you do wonder what purpose that does serve yeah it's just a flawed investment i guess at that stage but um for sauber it's not the case because um charles leclerc more getting more impressive by the day it seems he finished 10th again he had um a battle with Fernando Alonso once again, like they did in um, Barcelona, even though Alonso unfortunately retired from the race with a exhaust problem, I think it was, on the McLaren. But uh, yeah, another point there for Leclerc and the Sauber. And um, yeah, in the seven races that he's contested this year or in his F1 career, he's already outscored Marcus Ericsson's tally of points, which was an interesting stat to pick up at the end of the weekend. So, you know, great job there from Leclerc. And, you know, just boosting his stocks ever so much and you know we don't think next year will be the year he gets the call up but to Ferrari that is but um yeah you know for 2020 or for 2021 he's looking like a, a shoe-in with the way he's performing oh you never know stranger things have happened the longer that Daniel Ricciardo doesn't sign with anyone other than Red Bull and Kimi Raikkonen just um not necessarily underwhelms, but he just doesn't capitalise like Sebastian Vettel is, then Ferrari's got more to, to think about. And then Leclerc, you never know, it could get a, a real fluky race where he drives the skin out of the car and, and other cars have, have issues. He could end up close to that top five, and that's the kind of result where they might really want to take a punt on him. But he, he's certainly already proven in... Not even, yeah, double figures. Uh, seven races, and he already looks like he well and truly belongs, like some don't establish over multiple seasons on the grid. Yeah, exactly, which is really great to see from one of those junior drivers actually coming in and impressing rather than, you know, the likes of Jolyon Palmer, for example, who really underwhelmed. Stoffel Van Dorn, I guess, hasn't had the rub of the green either um, in the year and a half that he's been in Formula One, which we hope we can cha- that can change soon. But, um, yeah, it's nice to see when a junior driver comes in, picked on um, merit and everything, that they can perform. And it's not like Sauber are world beaters either. You know, if you can outperform your machinery that you've got, then, yeah, you basically are um, earmarked to have a good future in the sport. So, uh, great result there. It was unfortunate for Pierre Gasly, actually. Um, He finished 11th in the race, but... um, 
He was penalised and dropped to the back of the grid for a second change of power unit on the week over the weekend. So he start started off the weekend with a new one. Then they found some issue with that and then put the sec the old one back in before qualifying. And then after qualifying, apparently Red Bull came over and said, "Well, we want to see how this power unit does um, on both cars during the race. So you're going to put." the new one back in there and you're going to race that and I guess for for Honda and for Red Bull it actually was beneficial seeing as Hartley crashed out on the first lap we couldn't see what he could do but from 19th uh, Gasly up to 11th um, so it goes to show you that yeah the Honda has made some gains because he passed the likes of the Haas with the Ferrari the Force India with the Mercedes so great result there for him even though there was no points to show for it. Yeah, I think Red Bull's dropped all pretense there and all those indications are that it's a matter of, of when that announcement of uh, collaborating with Honda will will be confirmed. And for Toro Rosso, as much as they're showing that potential, they've got no other purpose than to, to be the, the trial runners for for the, the longer-term future. And who knows, once that decision's made, whether they can regain some of uh, their autonomy yeah exactly um we'll talk more about that in a second anyway but um roman grosjean i thought was impressive too this time out after that sort of scare he had earlier in the weekend uh crashing into a marmot during practice or whatever which you sort of get it's kind of like having their kangaroos out in um, bathurst here but um for uh grosjean you know a late stop on the stint with the Hypersoft tyres. He finished 12th in the end, um, best of the Haas guys. And I guess, you know, he probably, ne- even though there was no points to be had, he probably needed a weekend or a result like that after the the bad luck that he's had so far this season. Yeah, I think that uh, as hard as it is to believe, it's probably his most impressive drive to date. And that's saying something from where those expectations were coming into his third campaign at Haas and really a... Uh, a crossroads campaign for him but it's just never come together and this time out he, he was compromised with that failure at the start of of qualifying q1 wasn't it when the yeah the engine just went kaput coming out of the garage so i think that for, for him he's again coming off at a low base and just got to start somewhere finish those races and stay out of trouble and, and hopefully by that second half of the season he's at that level where it can be dangerous, and just for Haas as well, that they've just had a disappointing year to date. Yeah, well, not overly disappointing, but, you know, the last few races haven't been great, you know, considering the base that they had. Like, Australia, again, was just unfortunate what happened with the pit stops, then Bahrain, they were able to come out and... Um, uh, get a result there with Magnussen at least, but then, you know, we went back to the same idea of whether, you know, we have a one-car team basically at Haas with Grosjean in that Gutierrez role this year, so you, just we've got to wait and see if they can get both cars into the points in these car, uh, races that are coming up soon, but yeah, otherwise it's going to be costing them dearly as far as, you know, rivaling Force India and the like is concerned so sad for them in that respect sad for McLaren too who overall had a pretty poor weekend Van Dorn finishing 16th in the end he was collateral I think on the first lap uh, incident with Stroll and Hartley so that compromised his race and then of course Alonso we already said uh, had that early retirement as well exhaust out whether he actually just wanted to jump on a plane and fly to Le Mans straight away um, who knows but uh, yeah you know points went begging for them once again this weekend. 
And from that, <laughs> now we can fight hype after Australia just seems like it's diminishing returns for them. And even when they are, you know, sixth or seventh, uh, it's still not what they want. And for Stoffel Van Dorn, he just seems even further adrift. And I think, as I did mention coming into the year, that it would take till 2019 for them to realise any potential with, with Renault there. So this is just going to be another frustrating exercise for the balance of of 2018 for them, just making the most of still pretty limited package there and probably Fernando Alonso marking time. All those signs, as we're going to mention shortly, indicate a departure from Formula One. Yeah, exactly, and we'll come to that um, in a second anyway. So, yeah, just uh, one-point lead for Vettel coming out of this race and then, yeah, that triple header coming up. France, Austria, Britain, all back-to-back on weekends. It's going to be a busy one for us uh, starting next weekend. But um, to cap it all off, I guess, driver of the day... um, where do we go? I mean, for me, hard to look past Vettel and his masterclass, I guess. You know, he's not had the rub of the green in the past few races. I mean, up until Monaco, he hadn't been on the podium for about three races or whatever. So um, getting that win, reminding everyone that, yeah, he's still, you know, probably the favourite in this championship to win. And Ferrari just looking so at home at a circuit which they haven't done so since basically 2004 when Schumacher won uh, the last time there, so yeah, I think Seb wins that one for the day. Absolutely, it just seems as though that they're really assured of of the direction they want to head in for the first time in a, a long time, and they they haven't lost their heads after a few of those races where just things didn't quite work out, and and they enter this little phase of the the championship where if they can just they don't have to win every race, but as long as they're right up there and then don't implode like 2017 uh, then I think they're really going to be very hard to beat they just they just seem like on any given weekend to to be up there and it's only these little one percenters which uh, ever rule them out yeah exactly and I guess um, just before we forget as well um, heading into France um, I'll, we'll probably talk about it more in depth in the preview anyway next week but um, France is another race where remember when Pirelli were changing their tread depths for three races and then Mercedes came out and dominated in Barcelona well that's going to be a storyline going into France as well because uh, Paul Ricard's another circuit that Pirelli you're going to have that um, lower tread depth on those tyres so we'll see if that's another one that Mercedes can tick off same again for Silverstone yeah so two races in um, three weekends where we're going to have those changed compounds of tyres so let's go over the digest now and I guess what you were saying before about McLaren and Fernando Alonso so Zach Brown um, saying that a return to IndyCar is looking favourable now after this weekend so we saw uh, two weeks ago, they were in Detroit at Belle Isle having the meeting with uh, some of the IndyCar officials. Then this weekend in Canada, Michael Andretti was a guest of the McLaren team. I guess they've got their own partnership um, between Zach Brown and Michael Andretti elsewhere in the world, chiefly here in Australia with the Walkinshaw group. But um, yeah, all signs pointing towards McLaren returning to IndyCar. We don't know the specifics of it, whether it'll be their own operation that they have, like a one-car team or something, or will they sort of subcontract it from one of the existing teams? Um, what Zach Brown has said is that there is no animosity if um, or conflict, I guess, if they were to 
link up with someone who's using Honda power given their previous history because um, HPD, the Honda performance development or whatever in the US, I guess, different to dealing with Honda directly in Japan, the ones that they were dealing with in Formula One. So it's an exciting prospect, I guess. And what we were saying last week too, that perhaps um, this will be Alonso's uh, little ticket out of F1. He might be in IndyCar full time next year. Yeah, it's probably been a while coming ever since that fabled drive 2017, the Indy 500. He was always looking to to make a return and he's bided his time this season, given McLaren plenty of opportunity to to come good with Renault and that that hasn't been realised yet. So he's within his rights to, to move on, just cut those losses at 37. He's at that age anyway where um, most drivers are just reaching that natural lifespan in in formula one but that's not to say yeah you can't be competitive in these other series where you do see in sports cars indycar and supercars you're getting drivers well into their 40s so this could just be a a new lease of life for for alonso and then who knows you never could close the door on any kind of return to formula one in that foreseeable future but it's just at that stage where he'd be just wasting years where he could be having success in those other categories and now's the perfect time to make that move and for McLaren it gives them that chance to bring in their own next generation. Well it's supposedly Nico Rosberg came out and said um, over the weekend that apparently none of the big teams have any interest in Alonso in F1 at the moment. Mercedes and Ferrari, well I guess Ferrari you know the door was closed when he left in 2014 and so Mercedes is probably the only team that would look at getting an Alonso but they've got their own list of drivers that they'd wish to employ so it just leaves Alonso in that unfortunate situation where yeah you he is still a very competitive driver as we've seen but perhaps the door for him on F1 is about to close and yeah it's just McLaren I guess has let him down in this instance where they haven't had the car for four years now to to put him in a position where he can indeed fight <laughs> oh, it's partly mclaren's doing and alonso's just a sequence of ill-timed moves it could have always had a a different um trajectory all the way back to i guess when he joined mclaren in that first instance then when he uh, did leave mclaren went to renault instead of taking that red bull or even Braun bait at the end of the the 2000s he could have uh five six who knows how many titles but he chose his own direction and and yeah he has to live with it or rather flavio chose it for him and we know flavio very well um in the decision making he does but yeah for alonso i mean there's going to be a lot to talk about with alonso anyway over the coming days and weeks months or whatever until we get that decision on 2019 for now i guess um we just got to see how he goes at le mans this weekend it's going to be a big weekend and we'll preview that shortly anyway but um coming back to f1 world and um yeah, Ross Braun and F1 have extended an apology to uh, model Winnie Harlow, who waved the flag, the checkered flag, at the end of the race um, over the weekend in Canada. But there was a bit of a gaffe because it was waved two laps before the end of the actual race on lap 68. And um, a lot of people jumped on social media and 
there was a lot of criticism saying, oh, it was her fault. Why did they give her the flag to wave or whatever for a... Well, it doesn't help when you do think of that stereotype of <coughs> the model who knows nothing about F1. Yeah, you know... You just add one and one together and you that's think... That's basically yeah, what happened in this instance. Not much going on there, is Unfortunately, it? she was actually told by an FIA official that this is the final lap. So it was the FIA at fault in that instance or whatever. And she was the one who copped the flak. But it's nice of, I guess, for Ross Braun and the F1 team to come out and make that apology, you know, if it's uh, any solace for her reputation or whatever, if it took a hit amongst F1 fans or whatever over the weekend. I guess she was only doing it for a photo opportunity as well and whatnot. So um, regardless of that, what you say, you know, the stereotype, we shouldn't really look into it much. If they've come out and said that it was our fault, they put up their hands, then we've got to take the word for it and say yeah don't criticize the poor uh model there for it you know she was only doing what she was told i think the lesson is to maybe restrict these honors to perhaps start line you could maybe push the button for that sequence of well lights. yes Not you know you're coming to a point where the the race ends up being declared yeah. multiple well, laps we look, early and look who's if anyone nothing else daniel ricardo has the most right to be aggrieved you stripped of his prized uh, and um financially recompensed uh, fastest lap there oh yeah that too because he was in disbelief at the end of the race when sky sports or something told him that his teammate got the fastest lap award so he just seemed like he was heartbroken he was like oh that's you know that's unbelievable but we saw this isn't the first time we've seen that anyway a couple of years ago at the chinese grand prix that was ended a couple of laps early as well thank god in that case i think that was back in the dark days when mercedes won every other race yeah so so it was was doing us a favor yeah it was 2016 or 2015 i think so it didn't really do any favors but yeah if it has the potential to change the outcome of the race then it's something that's got to be it it, that's probably going to cause a furor if that ever happened but as you say it's some Something that maybe for the start of the race it's okay to do to give that honor to a celebrity or to another athlete as we see at Le Mans um, every year we have like someone a celebrity or another sports person starting the race this year we've got Rafael Nadal doing it off the back of another French Open victory as yeah, well so trust him to get it right <laughs> Fernando Alonso did it a couple of years ago um, as well at Le Mans and whatnot I think Jackie Chan might have done it last year so yeah that sort of thing is fine but perhaps checkered flag when you're calling the race um yeah it's a bit more a lot more has to go into it and they've got to be very careful because it is results we're talking about that could be damaged as a, as a result of it but anyway let's move on and red bull have come out and said that they're gonna decide about their engine for 2019 by the austrian grand prix that's the words of christian horner despite the fact that renault are saying that they've already overextended their offer on the tables it was supposed to be the 15th of may they were supposed to have a decision but now they said by the end of the canadian grand prix that would be great because you get to see honda's new engine and get a correlation with their own data and now red bull are just pulling the arm further and saying that yeah it's uh, austria which is in two races time. yeah well, end of the month so they've extended it by over six seven weeks but at the same time like you know, people are criticising Renault here for being a bunch of whingers. Renault shouldn't even be giving them the upgraded engine because what Red Bull are doing is comparing Renault's notes with Honda's notes and that's basically, you know, benefiting the other party here. It's benefiting Honda here because Honda can look at all that data or whatever that Renault have. So 
you know, in an ideal world, they shouldn't even be letting him do that. But Oh, it benefits go. Red Bull as well. They've almost got that complete 360 autonomy, so Renault's the only loser, and they just need to draw that line and say, no, you've had your three years of ambivalence and you haven't committed, and uh, so what if you've got two years in limbo? But this, so. but this is Renault also, if you want to talk about our Renault being the, uh, what do you call it, the whinges and everything. This is Renault still keeping good on a 12-year relationship that, you know, yes, it's become very fractious in the last few years and whatnot, but them still not forgetting that they had all that success together, whereas Red Bulls, with their short memory, yeah, seems to Renault have forgotten about it. A lot of goodwill from Renault's part, and again, just showing they're a class act, despite the fact they have had their issues since the hybrid era did commence. Red Bull, they, they just want to... Uh, really have the best package on the day and regardless of any kind of history where you know you could recreate it if both parties bring their equal contribution but that's not the way it seems to work with this particular organization yeah it doesn't uh, we could talk all about red bull all day anyway we won't do that anyway we'll move it on um unfortunate news coming out of the spanish moto 3 championship as well uh, over the weekend with a uh, 14 year old andreas perez killed in an accident um there that happened at turn five so um, there'll be a lot of heavy hearts heading into the actual Barcelona round of MotoGP this weekend as well um, with that news so yeah unfortunate um, promising uh, talent coming through the ranks and at the age of 14 as well it's um, yeah you know not what you want to be hearing I think that's the biggest takeaway and it just makes you question whether maybe that is a bit too young like maybe 16 would be uh, where you have that threshold just to be dealing even at that uh, uh, lowest um, power category of, of the three there you can see that uh, are they ready for it in in any capacity and um, especially a, a circuit like Spain which is um, it's pretty demanding and pretty unforgiving on anyone who makes a mistake well it's this in three years, it's the second death we've had in um, Grand Prix motorcycle racing because in 2016, it was um, Moto2 rider Louis Salom who crashed and lost his life at, uh, I think it was where they've put the chicane in there now, um, the penultimate corner. Originally in MotoGP, there was uh, no chicane there like there is in F1, but um, they've had to put that chicane there that as they do an f1 for motor gp because it's such a high speed approach and um you know that's where he lost his life so yeah it's a, a bit of a, a sad one there so hopefully everything goes okay for the riders this weekend in the three motor gp championships and um yeah i'm sure they'll um pay tribute to the the young spaniard yeah absolutely just uh, coupled with the multiple fatalities at the isle of man it shows you that these people they they go out there, much more realistic proposition of not coming back than you'd see these days in any other closed, you know, quasi-closed cockpits, F1, IndyCar, NASCAR, whatever. The, these guys, they, it really does bite you hard. Yeah, motorsport is dangerous. That's what they, it says on the back of your ticket and everything, and that's the reality of it, unfortunately. Um, to V8 Supercar Land now as well, and um, yeah, it's good that it's back underway this weekend in Darwin as well after a bit of a layoff but um, I guess the Enduro Cup lay the Enduro Cup field sorry has been confirmed as well with um, 
big mate racing, Todd Hazelwood getting uh, Super 2 regular and Bryce forward into the car for him. So that confirms the field. There is a few asterisks against a couple of names, but you expect them to be racing like Jono Webb, for example, for Techno and all that. So, yeah, you know, it's another promising endurance campaign that lies ahead. Um, we're in that crucial middle third of the season now where, you know, we had a promising start to the year. Um, Holden dominated. Then Ford were able to take it back with DGR team Penske and McLaughlin got on a roll. Now Fabian Coulthard won the last race that we had, so perhaps he's back in the hunt now as well. So the next few races, Darwin, Townsville, Ipswich, and then the the night race in Sydney, they're going to be crucial ones to see who can be in that mix going into the endurance campaign. We look at guys like Triple Eight, they need to win, have a good weekend. Even David Reynolds in the Erebus car as well needs to claw back some points, maybe get another win or two under his belt um, and be in contention coming into enduro time. Yeah, after that little lull there, it happens in fairly rapid sequence, that run into the Endurance Cup, and you can see that these sort of street circuits, the Townsvilles, Darwins and the like, they, they again, they're, they're quite unforgiving, and the, those big teams tend to be the ones that emerge on top here. So I think that for for anyone there, like an Erebus or, um, dare we say, Walkinshaw, if they want to have any chance of of putting themselves in unlikely contention. They just have to be um, consistent through these next three to four rounds. Well, Nissan was strong at Darwin a few years ago as well. So, you know, they've had a strong run this year. Could they be um, in contention again to take some points away from those championship contenders? But, yeah, you got to see it's going to be between DJR, Team Panthe and Triple um, Eight as always. So that'll be great to see when that gets underway again in a few days' time. And, um, yeah... Time to talk about the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is the biggest race of the year, you could say, arguably. It's going to be bigger this year with some big names. Uh, how many times have I said big um, in that sentence? Um, I hope no one's counting. Um, Fernando Alonso, of course, being that headliner. Jensen Button this year as well for SMP Racing in the LMP1. Then one Pablo Montoya with the uh, United Autosports in LMP2. But then you've got... Felipe Nazza, Guido Vandergaard, um, some of the big GT names, the Aussies in uh, Matt Campbell, Alex Davison. The, the list just goes on. 60 entries this year and just the the names that they've got, is it's just incredible. Yeah, and it flies in the face of those withdrawals in the past 24 months to think that they've still been able to retain and to attract these uh, identities from other other big um, motorsporting um, categories across the world, you can see that it still has that that pull there and different uh, again in within the twenty four hour Le Mans. Even though LMP one's been uh, considerably weakened, you can still see there's a lot to to play for, and arguably more of the attention will be on those lower categories into the the GT categories. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about GT in a second anyway but um even though toyota are the overwhelming favorites and we heard before as well that um kaz nakajima in the number eight car which is alonzo's car took provisional pole overnight for the race so um that's a good start for them even though they're the overwhelming favorites plenty can happen in 24 hours and this is why it's just no six hour endurance race where toyota can from lights out to check it flag dominate 24 hours presents a different challenge and we've seen what happened to toyota in the last few years where reliability comes into the picture these cars as t 
technically marvelous they are they still can't go the 24-hour distance because there is something that can always go wrong like it could be a one a one cent piece part that just um fails or whatever and that can ruin the whole complexion of the race so this is why there is the chance for a first privateer win in a while at Le Mans you know you got cars like the number one rebellion or whatever boasting Andre Lotterer who's won three Le Mans in the past Neil Yanni who's won a Le Mans in the past Bruno Senna who's a well-credentialed driver then Jensen Button of course in the LMP1 um, SMP entry as well with Vitaly Petrov and former IndyCar driver Mikhail Alation so plenty of um, talent there on the grid and plenty of chance too for these privateer entries the non-hybrids or whatever to get in contention because if something goes wrong to with Toyota which you don't want it to for the sake of Alonso winning but if it does then these guys will be there to capitalize and then we look at the LMP2 field as well 20 entries it's pretty massive with guys from the ELMS series the European Le Mans Championship and the American Le Mans Championship joining those WEC regulars as well so it'll be a lot to play even just in the prototypes um, before we get to GT land yeah, I think that's more of the intrigue when you see these rare, I guess, um, occasions where they unite different um, categories from sports cars under that, that one prestigious race and it just shows you that, that depth that is there and um, really uh, through the, the nighttime hours, depending where you're watching, when the drivers really earn their money and it doesn't matter if you're LMP1 through down to the amateur classes, that, that they're all clearly... Um, going into that unknown it doesn't matter how how much uh, experience you might have if you if you can get it right then you've got a good chance of coming out the other side when the the day and the sun rises again for a chance of honors yeah if you make it to the following morning then you're in with a shot but even still we've seen last lap thrillers and whatnot over the last few years toyota of course losing it on the last lap you could say in 20 in 2016 but then last year in the gt class we had a final lap battle between the astons and the corvettes i think and aston martin ended up um triumphing there so and quickly while i was talking about prototypes too it was great to hear the news last week come out and say that uh the new regulations for prototypes at Le Mans and the WEC after 2020 and 2021, they're looking at introducing the hypercars. Hyper so um, hypercars, of course, like the big names, uh, the LaFerrari from Ferrari, McLaren P1 and Porsche 918. Um, and then even you could include Brabham as well with their new car in the mix as well. Um, an opportunity to get these manufacturers back involved in a more cheaper way than doing the hybrid prototypes. But uh, yeah, you know, that could be McLaren's chance to get back into uh, endurance racing in Le Mans, Ferrari as well. That would be great to see if it actually gets pulled off. Yeah, all of them. Mercedes as well can't be discounted. They can all really have a have a run and whether that ties into the future of uh, say formula one they have that i guess synergy across the field opens up again that reciprocal idea that all these guys from other categories will be able to go and have a have uh try their hand at events such as even if it was just a one-off for a, a le mans then that's a, just a logical candidate and it's all i guess uh, fiscally um, you could say responsible that all of those resources could be pulled together since they're working around a, a basic sense of regulations which applies from 
from yeah, you know, Formula One into sports cars, they have that technology there which can be um, cross-shared. Well, yeah, the Formula One technology was ultimately what inspired McLaren to make the P1 um, hybrid LaFerrari as well. And then uh, Mercedes with their Project One, which is still in development at the moment. Um, but yeah, you know, that's all inspired by Formula One technology. And, you know, the list of hypercar manufacturers goes on. You know, Bugatti, could they even uh, make a prototype version of the Chiron, which is quite impressive on its own on the road. Um, Koenigsegg, you know, the list just goes on. So, yeah, I think it'll be great if they can implement that. It'll it'll be like the 90s or whatever with the GT1 regulations that they had with Le Mans as well. And we saw Mercedes, of course, take part in that infamously with the, the car that just liked to fly off the ground and whatnot. So, but um, going back to this year's Le Mans anyway, with the GT grid as well expanded, um, on the GTE Pro side of thing, we've got four four GTs. We've got four Porsche 911s because they, the two that are in WEC normally have had two more added to them um, from the IMSA Championship as well. They'll come in. Then the Corvettes as well, the two cars that they have with the likes of Yad Magnussen and um, Oliver Gavin, of course, Marcel Fesler joining the grid. At BMW, the first time they've been back at Le Mans as well in the GT class. And then Ferrari, of course, competitive as always. And over the week, there's been a boost for Aston Martin as well um, with their new Vantage that was sort of underwhelming at Spa, but um, they've had a balanced performance boost too, which will hopefully put them in contention for the win as well. And those cars with their lime green liveries, they look pretty stunning. So I'll be rooting for them for sure in the GT class. And then, of course, Matt Campbell, Alex Davison in GTEM racing in separate Porsches. So it'd be great to see one of those guys win in the class there as well. Yeah, again, just just great to see across all the categories, even if uh, you mightn't be particularly invested in, in every class to the extent you might uh, for a Formula One or a supercars. There's always an identity there or a car, which um, it's amazing. You see their own technologies involved to, to varying degrees through like five, six different classes we do have. That They're all a testament, I guess, to their own ability to get themselves this far into it. And uh, again, it's not, not something for the faint-hearted to, to get to this point. Yeah, across the four classes, I guess, you know, it's easy to get behind anyone and just enjoy the race, the spectacle. It'd be, so I keep saying it's one I definitely want to go to um, in the near future for attendance or whatever. And, um, you know, who knows? Uh, the 90th edition coming up in a couple of years' time or even the 100th in about 12 years, I think it is. Um, that'd be great to tick that one off um, the box as well. So hopefully everyone stays safe over the weekend and we have a great race and uh, good luck, I guess, to Fernando Alonso. Can he tick that box and uh, complete the Triple Crown? But interestingly, speaking of the Triple Crown, Montoya actually is on the precipice of winning it if he wins this weekend, but he's in an LMP2 car yeah. and that might be a bit difficult. He needs a lot of drama to happen up front for him to be in contention, but it's on the table. He could, he has the opportunity to do it if he can win the race outright. So that would be interesting to see. So let's cap it off, I guess, with our sporting moments of the week as well. And um, yeah, big week it has been in sport. Um, 
you probably know where I'm going to go with this anyway. Um, we were in attendance of the Queen's birthday um, AFL fixture between Melbourne and Collingwood, of course. It was a great day, great game actually to watch as well. Um, very competitive, even though Melbourne sort of just lost it sort of midway through it. But um, yeah, for me, it was Mason Cox who had the good best performance on ground, five goals to his name. Um, just Every time he stuck his uh, big mitts out, he was able to get the ball. He, um, you know, from what you say, he's not always this competitive and this much on form, but he does like to turn it up for those big games and whatnot. The big crowd of 83,000 didn't really phase him. Yeah, particularly in your presence there, that resonance to you oh, with the it's be. 46. <laughs> you can see it was meant to be. He was yeah. clearly putting on a show just so it means you're, you're going to have to be in attendance every game now for wanting uh, encore performances. As long as you can pay my, for my ticket, you know, I can guarantee Collingwood will win the flag this year with Mason Cox winning. Desperate times. Yeah, you know, it's been how long now since you've won? 2010, wasn't it? The last one. Yeah, feels a bit longer the way that the all the competition moves ahead. So it's it's good to see as uh, competitive as Collingwood's been. I think any time in Nathan Buckley's six and a half season tenure, and they just look like they're so assured now and uh, not not being really um, ambivalent, kicking it to each other, not knowing uh, what kind of strategy they want to employ. And it was just a really appealing, attractive brand of football, coupled with the whole. Uh, occasion with the big freeze there you can see it's really up there as uh probably just behind Anzac Day and to an extent the Dreamtime game in the home and away season as the the most uh, attractive on on that fixture yeah it's um the way that they presented that was incredible and you know big big um respect to Neil Danaher as well of course who's fighting um the motor neuron, di- motor neuron disease sorry and the money that they're raising every year to to raise awareness for it for anyone who's diagnosed with it unfortunately you know as we see him deteriorate year in year out you know he's still got that fighting spirit and to actually get a glimpse of him in the flesh as well you know and then to actually see him there and speaking while doing the um the pushing people off the slide and everything was really warming and you know just you get the glimpse of a, a proper fighter, a proper warrior who's standing up to this disease, which, you know, you know, other people have fought it, you know, Stephen Hawking, you know, how long did he get with uh, motor neuron disease? He's practically had it most of his life before he tragically passed away um, earlier this year. So yeah, a lot of respect to Neil Danaher, but the whole big freeze, I guess, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, the whole, circus i guess just seemed really great this year with the coaches going in uh with their dress-ups on and everything um the scott brothers or whatever going as each other john longmire the jockey um so it was uh, a lot of humor put on it as well i guess which is great and it's a spectacle that's the word i was looking for and chris fagan paid the ultimate price and he <laughs> tore his hamstring off the bone apparently tendons with it so he's got a bit of a rehab ahead of him but i'm sure you'll <laughs> think about it and say it was worth the the pain Reverend uh, Fagan, you could say, uh, doing the old um, Neil Danaher 
thing and who else was there um mark robinson our favorite you know being dressed up by uh, uh alan richardson the saint kilda coach with the um suit that's two sizes too big of course as well that was pretty funny yeah yeah leon cameron is but perhaps nigel mansell in the ferrari <laughs> yeah well tying it back to f1 that was my immediate reaction from from the back he almost looked like nigel mansell he should have just put on the mustache as well and would have been uh full-on nigel there but yeah no it was a great day out and great sporting um moment for the week the whole game itself if not just for mason cox's um uh performance on the weekend but yeah you know good luck for the rest of the season because it looks like it could be good um by this weekend and then three you would think easy games coming up which should keep easier said than done but if they play like they did on monday well if you lose well if you lose to carlton and gold coast that would be pretty disappointing wouldn't it so yeah i think uh Everything indicates that they've just got that consistency they've been lacking for a long time. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, that's enough for football and for this edition, I guess, this week. We'll be back next week to preview uh, the French Grand Prix, the first time since 2008 we've got a French Grand Prix on the calendar. Le Mans will be there to wrap up. State of Origin 2 next week as well will be exciting, so plenty to talk about. And um, we hope you enjoy the weekend of motorsport, even though F1 isn't on. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Till then.